0: Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to The Climate Report, broadcasting every second and for Thursday on KVMR-FM at 6.30 p.m. Today's show, we talk about climate doomism, how volcanoes might be able to help us with precious metals, how tall you should make a commercial building if you want it to be net zero and solar powered. We'll talk a little bit about EVs, and then we're going to end with hopefully what's an inspirational story – about what individuals and communities can do to make a difference without requiring billionaires, fancy technology financing, or politicians, just community members working together. Well, let's start with an interesting piece that I thought was worth reading to you by Rebecca Solnit. She's writing here in The Guardian that we can't afford to be climate doomers with the subheading, it often seems that people are searching harder for evidence we're defeated than that we can win. Her piece says, Stanford engineering professor and renewable energy expert Mark Z. Jacobson tweeted the other day, quote, given that scientists who study 100% renewable energy systems are unanimous that it can be done, why do we hear daily on Twitter and everywhere else by those who don't study such systems that it can't be done? A significant percentage of the general public speaks of climate change with a strange combination of confidence and defeatism. Confidence in positions often based on inaccurate or outdated or maybe no information. And defeatism about what we can do to make a more livable future. Maybe they just get their facts from other doom evangelists who flourish on the internet no matter how much reputable scientists demonstrate their errors. They're surrendering in advance and inspiring others to do the same. If you announce that the outcome has already been decided and we've already lost, you strip away the motivation to participate. And of course, if we do nothing, we settle for the worst outcome. It often seems that people are searching harder for evidence we're defeated than that we can win. Warnings are a valuable thing, given with the sense that there's something we can do to prevent the anticipated outcome. Prophecies assume the future is settled and there's nothing we can do. But the defeatists often describe a present they assert are locking in the worst outcomes. One day this week, someone told me that she was angry at people's refusal to acknowledge what's happening to the planet. And when I waved a couple of surveys at them, showing that in 2023, nearly 7 in 10 Americans, 69%, favor the U.S. taking steps to become carbon neutral by 2050, and I waved a survey that showed in 2021, three-quarters of adults in Great Britain, 75%, said they were worried about the impact of climate change, this person then shifted to complaining about poor leadership and climate deniers. So far as I could tell, she wanted to be angry at obstacles. And if one was removed, she had others. The climate scientist Zeke Housefather told journalist Shannon Osaka recently, quote, it's fair to say that recently... Many of us climate scientists have spent more time arguing with the doomers than with the deniers. He said that for a Washington Post story titled, Why Climate Doomers Are Replacing Climate Deniers. The people putting out defeatist frameworks have more impact than outright deniers, not least because deniers are right-wingers and the right is already committed to climate inaction. Doomers, though, discourage people who otherwise might act. So they're working toward the worst outcomes they claim to dread. You would expect them to be quietly unmotivated, but a lot of them seem to have an evangelical passion for recruiting others to their views. As an aside, I want to mention those of you that are regular listeners to the Climate Report. We talk a lot about the Yale Climate Communication Study. Every year they... They poll Americans and they break them down into six different groups uh, based on how alarmed they are or are they in denial. And year after year, those in denial keep shrinking. And it's so small, it's actually about 11% in this year's poll. The single largest group is the alarmed. And according to research and science and scientists and psychology, they're saying it's true that while there are climate deniers, they are so small and few That there's a bigger climate denial problem, and that's in all the people that believe that climate change is happening and we should do something, but they deny that their actions make a difference. And there are way more of those climate deniers than the other ones. Back to the article, it says, the same day I was told the public doesn't care. A couple of other people told me that, quote, the media is not covering the climate crisis. This was a reasonable position five or ten years ago, but it isn't at present. Mainstream print media, with its own enthusiasm for grim takes, oversimplification of nuanced climate reports, and distractions like last fall's fake fusion energy breakthrough, is indeed not doing the job the way I'd like to see it get done, but it is covering climate. There were, for example, multiple climate stories on the online front pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times that very day. Yet another person complained to me that day, quote, it's hard to stay hopeful when the New York Times tells us no need to worry, just take a nap, end quote, referencing a story in the Times about Spanish siestas as a way of coping with heat. But when I went to look, that story was clustered on the webpage with a number of serious reports about the current extreme heat and climate emergency. There are a lot of things wrong with the New York Times, but the paper was covering climate seriously that day. Many things that were once true, that we didn't have adequate solutions, that the general public wasn't aware or engaged, no longer are true. Outdated information is misinformation, and the climate situation has changed a lot in recent years. The physical condition of the planet, as this summer's unprecedented extreme heat and flooding in Canada's and Greece's colossal fires demonstrate, has continued to get worse. The solutions have continued to get better. The public is far more engaged. The climate movement has grown, though of course it needs to grow far more. And there have been some significant victories as well as the incremental change of a shifting energy landscape. Most positive climate news doesn't make very dramatic reading, and I usually find it in technical journals, tweets from scientists and policymakers, and climate-specific news services. As an aside, I totally agree. That is why I do the climate report and why KVMR hosts it here to bring the things that are in the nooks and crannies to the airwaves. I typically do everything I can to avoid the main stories that I know everyone is already hearing. The question is, what else do we need to hear? So I agree with Rebecca Solnit, who I'm reading from here. She continues, It's often about incremental stuff like that we're deploying more wind and solar and using less fossil fuel to generate electricity, or it's about legislation or technical things like new battery storage materials or less polluting concrete formulas, or it unpacks surveys showing that most people support climate action. Hey, she and I are speaking the same language. Mostly they tell us that we have the capacity or are increasing the capacity to do what will limit the crisis their interim reports, and the public often seems to want final scores, to know how the story will end. We don't know because we're deciding that now. A lot of people in this society also like certainty. And while it's obviously foolish to be certain we will win, somehow certainty we will lose isn't subject to the same judgments. That certainty seems to come in part from an assumption that change happens in predictable ways so we can know the future or that they're environmental but not social or technological tipping points but as the think tank carbon tracker notes quote the s curve is a well-established phenomenon where a successful new technology reaches a certain catalytic tipping point typically five to ten percent market share And then it rapidly reaches a high market share, for example, 50% or more, within just a couple more years, once past that tipping point. Solar panels, wind turbines, and lithium-ion batteries have all followed such learning curves. Each technology has declined in cost by over 90% in the past two decades. And so their growth has followed an S-curve model." Change is often not linear, but exponential, or it's unpredictable. Like an earthquake releasing centuries of tension, big changes start small, and history is studded with surprises. She starts to wrap up by saying, I don't know why so many people seem to think it's their job to spread discouragement, but it seems to be a muddle about the relationship between facts and feelings. I keep saying I respect despair as an emotion, but not as an analysis. You can feel absolutely devastated about the situation and not assume this predicts outcome. You can have your feelings and can still chase down facts from reliable sources. And the facts tell us that the general public is not the total problem, the fossil fuel industry and other vested interests are. That we have the solutions, that we know what to do, and that the obstacles are political too that when we fight, we sometimes win, and that we are deciding the future now. I wonder sometimes if it's because people assume you can't be hopeful and heartbroken at the same time, and of course you can. In times when everything is fine, hope is unnecessary. Hope is not happiness or confidence or inner peace. It's a commitment to search for possibilities. Feelings deserve full respect as feelings, but all they inform you about is you. History is full of people who continued to struggle in desperate and grim circumstances, and so is the news from Ukraine to the Philippines. Some lived to see those circumstances change because of that struggle. And maybe this is what Antonio Gramsci meant with his famous phrase, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Some days I think that if we lose the climate battle, it'll be due in no small part to this defeatism among the comfortable in the global north, while people in frontline communities continue to fight like hell for survival, which is why fighting defeatism is also climate work. That's Rebecca Solnit. She's uh, got a book, a climate anthology that she wrote called Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. And this was a piece that uh, was in The Guardian yesterday called We Can't Afford to Be Climate Doomers. Okay, let's talk about some interesting stuff you might not have heard about, and then uh, I'm going to rip through some headlines, uh, job opportunities, funding, just to give you a sense of how much is going on everywhere all around the world, and that um, we, we want to make sure that we're not waiting for someone else to play our part. Um, here's a quick interesting tidbit how volcano magma could help meet the green economy's demand for metal. Um, one hurdle in the transition to a low-carbon future is the huge increase in demand for metals associated with renewable energy technologies. By 2050, it's anticipated lithium production will need to have increased by tenfold, cobalt by sixfold, and silver by half as much again. Even the most efficient recycling cannot meet this demand, and conventional mining practices are energy-intensive and environmentally damaging. Some mining companies are looking to the deep sea, but as well as being technically challenging, this risks irreversible damage to unique ocean environments. There are a lot of warnings right now about that. But this is interesting. Writing in Geoscientist, Olivia Hogg and John Blundy suggest harnessing the power of volcanoes instead. Volcanic magmas are rich in metals, with active volcanoes such as Mount Etna in Italy, releasing about 20 tons of copper and 10 kilograms of gold every single day in their volcanic gases. Can you believe that? Mount Etna in Italy, every single day, 20 tons of copper, 10 kilograms of gold bursting out, wrapped inside their volcanic gases that comes from the magma underground. Now, they say extracting metals from volcanic gas is implausible, but mining it from the underlying hot magmatic brines does have real potential. Metals are super concentrated in these super hot brines, and the hot fluids could be used to produce geothermal power on site, potentially making the mining process carbon neutral. Now, they close by saying many challenges remain, but the good news is about 2,000 volcanoes globally have the potential to become brine metal sites. And at least 15 European states have active or dormant volcanoes that might be suitable for metal extraction and geothermal power. Now, that being said, who wants to begin cracking open uh, a volcano and the risks thereof? So, we shouldn't get too terribly excited about that yet. But what we should get excited about is what's happening all around the planet. What I like to do sometimes is just scurry through some headlines to give you a sense of what's happening everywhere. Developing countries, uh, the the Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, um, to just give you a good dose of of, of hope and possibility. Um, so there are stories here about, and, oh, and here's what I do personally. Um, I get emails from uh, various different types of industry groups. So, for example, I get emails from the solar industry that talk about all of the stuff that's happening uh, around the world. And then I get information from climate places, energy efficiency. And those can sometimes just be really helpful um, pick-me-ups. Even if I'm not reading every single article, I'll open the email, cruise through the headlines, and go, yes, lots going on. So, for example, this is from uh, one of the solar industry emails I get. And um, here's what's happening around the world. In France, they're unveiling new rates for solar systems up to 500 kilowatts. So France is uh, changing their rules, rules and regulations to enhance the payback. Botswana, let's talk about Africa, oftentimes ignored in the uh, Anglo media. Uh, Botswana is launching their bids for solar plants. Botswana Power Corporation has launched a tender for the development, financing, construction, operation, and maintenance of three big solar power projects. Um, Then we also have, let's see, that's interesting, that's interesting. Um, Oh, yeah. Then here we go. Um, India is deploying almost nine gigawatts of solar under a solar parks program. Seven big solar parks. India is going big and huge for solar. Um, We'll talk a little bit about in Alaska, how they've discovered that there are Uh, More than a thousand locations where they could do pumped hydro storage. We'll talk about that in a second. Vietnam is stepping up their solar game and they're being a a major producer now for solar panels competing with China. And uh, a lot of US projects are using those. There's in the UK, um, a coal power plant is now switching over to being a large battery system. And then also in the North Sea, up there around the UK, is a giant floating solar platform demonstration that is going to be going on line and um, if you could see the picture that I'm looking at um, essentially picture you know we're familiar now with oil platforms out in the deep sea and even wind turbines way out in the deep sea the North Sea has some wind farms out there and so they have ways to have floating platforms and uh, and have wind generation out in the ocean and bring the power back through undersea cables So what they're working on now is a mixture of that. So you sort of take the floating oil platform concept and you blend it with the wind farm concept. And they're looking at just putting giant platforms full of solar out in the uh, North Sea that could then create electricity without taking up any of the terrestrial space and bringing that electricity back through because they already know how to do that. So fascinating way of perhaps deploying more solar. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, jobs and funding. Here's some uh, recent funding situations. This is just money exchanging hands, investors investing, and companies around the world doing all sorts of things. This is intended to inspire us and uh, make us feel as though, yes, there actually is a lot of action happening, even though a lot of our common news sources aren't talking about it. Uh, Chinese company Farizon, For- For- not Verizon, but Farizon, Raised more than half a billion dollars in Series A funding to roll out production of hybrid and electric trucks and vans. The company plans to expand outside of China, specifically releasing its electric cargo van in Europe next year. Then there is an Oslo, Norway-based company. They raised more than $100 million in funding to expand its solar and battery storage divisions. There's a Denver-based mining company, Coloma, raised almost $100 million in funding to drill for geological hydrogen Brazilian company raised almost 50 million in funding for reforestation projects in the Amazon. Um, in Finland, the company raised 28 million for funding low carbon hydrogen production technology. An Italian company raised 17 million in funding for its CO2 based battery storage technology that condenses CO2 and stores it as a liquid for later use. Um, there's a Santa Monica, California based company, Arrive Recommerce. They raised $16 million in funding for its platform that allows brands to resell returned products. So that helps with uh, you know, saving them, manufacturing new products. Um, then we've got uh, a Spanish company raised more than $7 million in funding for its wind turbine repair and reconditioning. And then a uh, Singapore-based company raised more than $4 million to develop um, more environmentally friendly wastewater treatment technology. So stuff is happening all over the place and there are jobs 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 okay i want to get to this end story so let me uh bang out a couple quick headlines here this was fascinating so if you think about uh, you know solar homes homes are small enough with their footprint that you can put an entire solar system on the roof and it'll power that entire house well when you think of a commercial building they have a limited roof footprint too but once you stack a floor on top of a floor on top of a floor the taller you make a building the less power they can get off that roof. So, you know, one-story commercial building might get 100% of their solar off of their rooftop. But once you have a 50-story building, it's still the same little roof, so it might only make 5% of the building's uh, power. So there's a study that shows that to achieve net energy status, a solar-powered building should not be taller than 10 floors. How about that? So if you want to make sure that it's not such a tall building, that that little bit of solar on the top... Isn't doing justice, um, you got to stop at 10 floors. And then in Alaska, almost 2,000 sites have been identified for pumped hydro storage. That's storing power not in batteries, but um, pumping it uphill in the middle of the night when power is abundant and cheap and there's an oversupply. And then during the day, allowing it to run downhill and making power when you need it. So it's called pumped storage, almost 2,000 locations. Have been identified in Alaska. Okay, I'm going to skip this EV story because I really want to hit this uh, large piece here. The reason I'm going to read this again, I mentioned this at the, at the start of the show. A lot of conventional media is making it seem like uh, we're all waiting for rich white billionaires to uh, invent fancy technologies and then we're going to go shop our way out of this situation. Uh, that we need to wait for financing and political solutions. We need to wait, 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 and the big and powerful are going to do this for us. And the science keeps showing that uh, a lot of the big, powerful, and the political people tend to be the last responders, quite honestly, because they're benefiting from the status quo. They don't know how to change it. They're in those positions because they know how to run the status quo. So this is a fantastic story. It's about women. It's about women working together. It's indigenous women as well as a convent of nuns, Catholic nuns, and working together to help heal New York waters using seaweed. This inspired me. I hope it's inspiring to others. Saved by seaweed, nuns and native women heal polluted New York waters using kelp. This is supported by Open Society Foundation's part of Covering Climate Now, global network of climate stories. It says here, early on a January morning, a dozen nuns hopped on a Zoom call and waited patiently for their turn to speak softly, sweetly, to plants. One of the sisters sang a song. Another played the flute. Several recited poetry and prayers. The intended audience of their kind words were dozens of kelp seedlings, which had a big task. Grow big and healthy enough to be planted in the waters off the shores of Long Island, New York. The sisters are part of a unique collaboration, situated on the edge of a bay. They have helped a group of women from the Shinnecock, a local indigenous tribe, start a kelp farm in the hopes of cleaning up the pollution in their shared backyard. Said tribal member Danielle Hopson Begun, When we started our hatchery, we were doing a lot of research for ways to give our kelp the best start in life. Studies have shown that kelp plants respond well to high-frequency tones said sister carrie handall after the zoom call i would tell you as someone who is in the hatchery every day you could see the growth mushroom these two groups indigenous tribe sisters in a convent are united by proximity and purpose both live on either sides of the shinnecock bay and they hope the growing and planting of kelp will help eliminate the carbon and nitrogen that had been poisoning their waters The kelp seedlings also represent the latest efforts by an intergenerational group of Shinnecock women to combat the tribe's disenfranchisement. Historically a maritime tribe, the Shinnecock Indian nation have long depended on the bay to survive. In the last 40 years, though, overdevelopment in the high-end Hamptons without a municipal sewer system coupled with fertilizer runoff has elevated the nitrogen level in the Shinnecock Bay. In 2019, six Shinnecock women decided to take matters into their own hands. They formed a kelp farming collective and enlisted the Sisters of St. Joseph. Together, they are working to rescue the bay on which both communities are situated. The Sisters are on a bucolic, sprawling 200-acre retreat center on the bay's west side, and the Shinnecock are on a 900-acre peninsula to the east. It might seem like a long shot, except it's working. Says Shinnecock tribal lawyer Taylor Troge, our voices for so long have just been erased or silenced. So it's very, it's refreshing. It's empowering to have anything that we individually or collectively need. We'll drive by the multimillion dollar homes, pools, and golf courses of the renowned New York escape Southampton, and you would scarcely know there is an indigenous population even there. But the Shinnecock have been on Long Island for the last 13,000 years or as the Shinnecock will tell you, 400 generations. They are one of New York's oldest self-governing tribes, and about half the tribal members live on the 900-acre peninsular reservation. Traditionally, the Shinnecock were a mariner tribe, and their history as expert fishermen, hunters, farmers, and whalers has proven critical in the absence of other economic opportunities. Today, however, the tribe faces constant ecological threats, Explains tribal attorney Troj, it's alarming. We're looking at the very real situation or possibility that we might have to relocate our entire tribal nation. We're really disenfranchised by being in the place where we are so exposed to the elements. It's really just like a thin barrier island that separates us from the Atlantic Ocean. So the ever-increasing intensity of superstorms and hurricanes really threatens us. The more immediate threat, though, is to the marine life that the nation has depended on to sustain them. Says Trogue, for generations we were taught how to live off the land or how to fish for what we need, but it's just not possible anymore because the nitrogen levels in the sea. It's killing all of the fish and the shellfish that have sustained us. So in 19, 2019, Toby blocked, the director of infrastructure for Green Wave, that's a global nonprofit that provides training and support to regenerative ocean farmers, learned about the plight of the Shinnecock and believed he could help. He reached out to a longtime Shinnecock activist, Becky Genia, to see if she had interest in starting a kelp farm. Research has found that sugar kelp can absorb carbon and nitrates from the water, making it a natural means of combating, combating ocean acidification. Starting a kelp farm would involve developing kelp from seedlings and tanks in a hatchery and then farming them in the bay. Well, the Shinnecock have a long history of using seaweed for everything from currency to medicine, as well as beauty products and even insulation in their homes, so to Jenny, it felt like a natural pivot. But the tribe didn't have a space for a hatchery, and they wanted to move quickly. They considered purchasing cargo containers before Jenny realized the obvious answer to their dilemma was sitting right across the bay. Tribal members had had meaningful contact with the sisters once before. In 2018, the remains of two Shinnecock children were finally returned to the tribe from the NYU Dental School after years of campaigning by tribal members. Jenny Troge and the other tribal members hoped to rebury the remains as close as possible to their original burial site, and records show that the location was a covenant of the Catholic Sisters of St. Joseph, a community with a property directly across from the reservation on the bay. We had never met them and didn't have a relationship with them, but they were so welcoming, said Troge. After consulting with the sisters, the tribe chose the monastery cemetery as the site for reburial. Several sisters joined the ceremony, and afterwards, the two groups shared a meal. At that point, they began farming and working together, and ever since, it's been a magic success. Without financing politicians' fancy technology, it's using nature and women working together. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report Broadcasting and Podcasting here on KVMRFM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. As always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website's podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. And don't forget to look around and discover what ways we might be able to utilize nature and find our version of kelp and our local community members that are willing to work together on local solutions that make sense for us.